Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. The Heavenly Calling. By James Boyd. Please see part 1 first before reading part 2. Part 2 of two parts. The Chastening of the Lord. Threading one's way through a thicket of error is tiresome work. And such is the book that lies before me. Written by a well-known man who is spoken of as a gospel stalwart, and in it there is not one solitary truth of the gospel in the setting in which it is found in scripture. Had we not been well warned of the departure of professing Christians from the truth, we should certainly have been bewildered as we look abroad upon Christendom today. Yet is there a bright side to it all, for it is a witness of the near approach of our Lord and Saviour. This prospect, in the midst of sorrow, may well make our hearts rejoice. It is asserted that the chastening of the Lord may in many cases continue after the Lord has come, and even throughout his millennial reign. It may even go the length of consigning some to the lake of fire for that period. Some, it is stated, return temporarily to corruption until the resurrection from death to the great white throne judgment. To have to return to corruption after having been raised in incorruption, power, and glory, and in spiritual bodies, would be a humiliation indeed. But, thank God, there is not a particle of truth in it, nor do I think that many real believers are likely to mistake such falsehoods for the truth of the gospel. But perhaps if we inquire into scripture as to why we are chastened at all, it will help us to understand whether the chastening of the Lord is needful when we are raised from the dead. What light does scripture furnish as to this? We are told, at any rate, that when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 32. Now if a believer got his portion with the hypocrites, or was cast into outer darkness, where there were weeping and gnashing of teeth, or if he were cast into the lake of fire, would he be condemned with the world? Are outer darkness and lake of fire not the portion of impenitent sinners? Are these judgments punitive, or remedial? Chastening by God is always remedial, and there is not an element of punishment in it. The object of it is, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. This is the object of it, and though no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, to them which are exercised thereby, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 10 to 11. Will a thousand years in outer darkness, or in Gehenna, yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, or make a soul partaker of his holiness? How does he address us? Again, how does he speak to us when he takes up the rod? Is it thou wicked servant, or depart from me, I never knew you? Far from it. He says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loves he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 to 6. How different all this is from, cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, it is difficult to imagine such God-dishonoring thoughts being allowed to germinate in any heart that knows the love of God. It is astonishing how far even a saint of God can go in error, if not watchful to keep independence upon God. May both reader and writer take warning by the fall of so many strong men, and walk in self-judgment, and heart-reference to God, that he may be kept from the error of the wicked one. No chastening when glorified. Chastening shall not be required when we are glorified, for the flesh will not be in us. The change of body will have delivered us from that. As far as the work of God in us is concerned we are incapable of sinning. In the one begotten of God his seed remains, and he cannot sin, because he is begotten of God. At present sin has its seat in our members, Romans chapter 6 verses 12 to 13, though we are not to allow it to reign there. We are to bring the cross to bear upon it, our old man has been crucified with him, and it is our privilege to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, and alive to God. 
and in this God helps us by chastening, using various means to this end. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 to 11, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 to 4, for we might forget the reckoning, and that would be disastrous. Chastisement, but only in this life. For this statement proofs are demanded. Would it not be more consistent for men advancing theories to which most believers are unaccustomed, to give us proofs that in our glorified state chastisement might be needful and administered? But proofs abundant have been advanced for the statement. We are chastised that we should not be condemned with the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 32. If a believer gets his portion with the hypocrites, Matthew chapter 24 verse 51, is that not being condemned with the world? If a believer be cast into the lake of fire, is that not being condemned with the world? Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. If a believer has to hear from the lips of his Saviour those terrible words, I never knew you, is that not being condemned with the world? John chapter 10 verses 14 to 15. But I am informed that chastisement cannot cancel unrepented offences during discipleship. True, nor can repentance cancel repented offences, either during discipleship or during any other time, either in this life or the next, either in time or in eternity. Not one thing in earth or heaven can do that but the blood of Christ, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. That chastening can and does purify the soul, is not to be denied. But when that is admitted another question has to be considered, and that is, what is the nature of the purification? It cannot improve the divine nature, or the superstructure that may be raised upon it by the word of truth, nor can it make the flesh any better, for the flesh is incorrigibly wicked. The one that is born of God cannot sin. Of this I have already spoken. He that is bathed is every whit clean, John chapter 13 verse 10. He is born of water and the spirit. And, as I have said, the flesh is unmendably bad, Romans chapter 8 verses 5 to 8. What is it, then, that is purified? If the workmanship of God is spotlessly pure, and the old and fallen nature is hopelessly evil, what then? By the chastisement we are subject to death. It is rolled in upon us in such a way that this scene in which the flesh has its home becomes less an object to us, and that world of glory to which we have been called. And he who gave himself for us, and who is the sun and centre of that world, becomes more precious to our hearts. Thus are our thoughts and affections purified, and our practical lives become more descriptive of Christ. The life of Jesus is more manifested in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 to 11. But supposing the old fleshly nature was not in us, and supposing we were that which we are by the work of God, where would the need of chastening come in? Will the divine nature hanker after this world? The lust and pride that are in this world are both of the flesh, and that which is born of the spirit cannot be contaminated with its evil. Our mortal bodies, in which only sin can reign, will be changed and fashioned like Christ's body of glory, and we shall be conformed to his image, Romans chapter 8 verses 29 to 30. Chastening therefore would be unnecessary. We are told by a propagator of this doctrine that only those in the first resurrection are incapable of dying again. Of believers unworthy of being in the first resurrection, no such assertion of incorruptibility is made. Who are these? I have not come across any hint of such in scripture. I have already referred to this, and will therefore only remind the reader that the word is plain on the subject, and that we are distinctly told, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and all at the same moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. There is no other passage in God's holy word that contradicts or modifies this blessed statement, wherefore comfort one another with these words. There is the resurrection of the wicked. 
who are subject to the second death, but these are not under consideration. That chastisement will not end with the present life, that many and plain proofs, given are proofs of nothing of the kind. Those denied by Christ, that are cast into hell fire, into outer darkness, cut asunder, have their portion with hypocrites, or to whom Christ says, I never knew you, are lost forever. Wicked servants, fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, shall find their eternal portion in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Let all who read these lines beware that they be not deceived with the soul-destroying falsehood, that only a few years, even in Gehenna, are all that they need fear. And in the end they shall come forth and reign forever with the Son of God. These men may complain that they are assailed with hard words. No words that could be invented are hard enough to set forth the utter wickedness of such spiritual poison. I say to every soul, be he who he may, if any of these wickednesses characterize you, and you die as you have lived, not the loss of the kingdom only, but the loss of your soul for all eternity, shall be your unspeakably miserable reward. How good it is to know that even should you find yourself in this catalogue of sinners, there is in this day of grace the assurance for the penitent that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Such had been some of the Corinthians, but they were washed, sanctified, and justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. Do not for one moment suppose you can forfeit reigning with Christ, and be blessed in the eternal state. I see no way into the eternal state except through the kingdom. To whom are the epistles written? The answer to the question is this, they are written to all in every locality who have been gathered out of this world to the name of Christ by the preaching of the gospel. The effect of the preaching we find in Matthew chapter 13. There we have three classes of hearers those who hear, and pass on without any effect being produced. The devil takes the seed out of the heart, as the birds of the air pick up the seed that falls on the wayside. Then we have that which falls into stony hearts, in which there has been no ploughing up of the conscience, the word is received at once with joy, but taking no root, when the sun rises it is scorched. Tribulation or persecution makes such abandon Christ. That which is sown among thorns is choked by the cares and riches of this world, and is without fruit. But he that received the word into good ground, is he that hears the word, and understands it, which also bears fruit, and brings forth, some an hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty the last only are saved souls. Now, people are received on their profession of faith in Christ, and as neither the apostles nor anyone else is omniscient, there cannot be but a mixture in the professing church. Hence all the warnings that are to be found in every epistle. I do not infer that these warnings are not really valuable to the saints, for they certainly are. People brought out of the darkness and degradation of heathenism, and Jews also brought into the true light, require to have set before them the truth as given to us of God and to be well warned as to the consequence of walking in the darkness out of which they had been gathered. Also from the beginning there were evil teachers who swarmed over the assemblies, seeking to turn them away from the faith and corrupt their morals. And these were in the profession of Christ. Among the Corinthians there were those who denied the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then in 2 Corinthians we find those who sought to turn the saints away from the apostle, chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. The apostle also refers to very wicked men, false apostles, deceitful workers, servants of the devil, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and says that their end shall be according to their works, chapter 11 verses 4 to 15. In all the epistles we have these warnings, to which we should take heed, for, by the word of thy lips have I kept me from the paths of the destroyer, Psalm chapter 17 verse 4. 
To return to Matthew chapter 13, it is not only that there is a mixture on account of the way in which the gospel is received, but the devil himself introduces tares among the wheat. Then there is the mustard tree, a monstrosity, the leaven, corruption. This is the external aspect of the kingdom at this present time. The treasure and the pearl, all that is precious to Christ is in it, but not so manifested to the natural eye as to be distinguished from the lifeless profession. But in the net cast into the sea we have a picture of the whole effect of the preaching during the dispensation of grace, and when the net is full the fishermen draw it to the shore. And the work of selection begins, they put the good into vessels, and cast the bad away. Now we have come near to the close of the dispensation, and we see that this work has begun. The Lord alone knows them that are his, but we can judge men by their fruit, not with absolute assurance as to his own, but we are to accept all that call on the Lord with a pure heart. And those who do not bear the characteristics of the children of God we reject. It does not seem that selection takes place until the net is full. If selection, which certainly is practiced at the present time, is of God, then we rest assured that the end is near. It is to the profession, viewed as the result of the sowing of the seed, that the epistles are written, all that call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. But viewed as the assembly of God in the place, and addressed as saints, for this all are held to be, until otherwise manifested. Hence the warnings against the allowance of the flesh, the indulgence of the carnal appetite, the slipping away from the word of salvation, and the possibility of apostasy from Christ. In 1 Corinthians they are warned against trusting to the ordinances of Christianity, chapter 10, having fellowship with idolaters, and going on with filthiness of flesh and spirit, 2 Corinthians chapters 6-7. In Galatians we find they were going back to law, and to circumcision, and they are told that if they do this Christ shall profit them nothing, chapter 5 verse 2. In Ephesians they are reminded that because of the allowance of the flesh the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience, also in Colossians we have the same thing, and a warning given them. Their presentation before the fullness of the Godhead, as holy and unblameable and unreprovable, depended upon their continuing in the faith, and not being moved away from the hope of the Gospel, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 5 to 6, Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23, 3, 5 to 6. But need I refer to more scriptures? We get the same thing everywhere Timothy, 2 Peter, and Jude. By all these scriptures are we warned, and in them our path is clearly marked out for us, while they serve as an alarming voice to the consciences of those who may be found trusting in the ordinances that, however precious they may be, cannot save the soul. But in all this there is not one single text of scripture to cause the faithful heart the least fear that he may not be a companion of the Christ in the day of his reign. Even the Corinthians are assured that our Lord Jesus Christ shall confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. Of the purchased possession we have already got the earnest of that inheritance, in being, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 Paul speaks of being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. As to Colossians, he says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Chapter 3 verse 4. Of this blessed hope we have everywhere the most blessed assurance, we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. 1 John chapter 4 verse 17. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans chapter 8 verse 30. Our Lord prays for them that believe on me through their word, and says, The glory that thou hast given me I have given them, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, etc. John chapter 17 verses 22 to 23.
There is a notion in the minds of those who come under the influence of these errors, that salvation and forgiveness may be taken as synonym. Scripture, however, gives no support to such a thought. Forgiveness is simply that the creditor no longer regards the debtor as liable for the debts he may have contracted. God releases the sinner from the consequences of his sin. But salvation is the emancipation of the sinner from every evil power that had captivated him, and held him as a slave. Reference is made to Israel in this book. At the Red Sea Israel was told to stand still and see the salvation of God. The people were delivered from the bondage under which they lay, and the dread power of the enemy was broken. If we should speak of the blood-sprinkled lintel as affording them salvation, I do not think it is ever called that, it would be salvation from God. For the blood was on the doorpost to keep out his righteous judgment, which was abroad in the land. Through the shed blood we have forgiveness, Ephesians 1-7, and without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. At the Red Sea we have the salvation of God. This is Christ delivered for our offense, and raised again for our justification. Romans chapter 3 verses 24 to 26 has reference to the blood in Egypt, and chapter 4 verses 24 and 25 to the Red Sea divided. Chapter 3, through faith in his blood. Chapter 4, we believe in him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Israel's salvation was not the salvation of the soul, but temporal deliverance, not eternal. It delivered him from Pharaoh and his oppression, but not from the oppressor, the devil, whom Pharaoh typified. It was a salvation openly revealed, then and there, not like the salvation of the soul, which is, ready to be revealed, but for its revelation awaits the appearing of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 to 13. Their baptism was to Moses in the cloud and in the sea, ours to Christ and to his death. Their food was the manna for the sustenance of the body, ours is Christ for the sustenance of the spiritual life derived from Christ. The rock from which they drank, poured forth its water, after being smitten with the rod of Moses, for the natural thirst of the congregation. Our rock is Christ who was smitten with the rod of divine judgment on our behalf, and from whom risen and glorified, flow the refreshing streams of divine grace for the weary pilgrim on his journey to heaven. We must keep in mind that they were a people taken up in the flesh, and that their arrival at the purpose of God depended entirely on their obedience to the command of God. I speak of their history from Sinai onward. From the departure out of Egypt until Sinai they were under pure grace, but at Sinai they entered into a covenant with God, binding themselves to life and blessing on the ground of their fulfilling their responsibilities. And broke it the first day they got it. Then, through the intercession of Moses, they got the law once more, written upon the second two stony tablets, but with a little grace added, Exodus chapter 34 verses 1 to 9. For the rest of their journey they were not under pure law. Under pure law they would have perished to a man at Sinai. It became now a question of their inheriting with the help of God, but in Numbers 14 we see that even with the help of God they could not inherit. Even those who eventually came into the land could not keep it, for they proved themselves to be worse than the nations that were in the land before them. They broke the law, stoned the prophets, and murdered the Son of God, and today they are a mighty witness to the great fact that the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Yet Israel shall enter into and enjoy the inheritance which God promised to them, but it will be on the ground of pure grace, and under a covenant that shall leave them nothing to do but submit to God's terms. They will inherit through the sovereignty of God. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will feel compassion for whom he will feel compassion, and therefore blessing will not be of him that wills, nor of him that runs. But of God that shows mercy, Exodus chapter 33 verse 19, Romans chapter 9 verses 15 to 16. On the part of God it will not be, I will, if you will, but it will be all God's, I will. The new covenant will simply set forth the disposition of God towards the people. 
and what he says he will do, that he shall do, Hebrews chapter 8 verses 6 to 13. And this will be their salvation. The ground of all blessing for them and for us is the work of the cross. That was a work done outside of us. But it is also necessary that a work should be done in us. The work done for us is set before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures, in the epistle to Titus we have the work done in us, after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. That being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The first is the work done for you, the second is the work done in you. And both are necessary if we are to have the hope of eternal life. And being justified by his grace we are heirs, and cannot be robbed of our inheritance. But not all that came out of Egypt entered the land. In connection with this we are told by the writer of this book, God's sharp dilemma impales us on its one horn or on the other. Overthrown Israel are a type, either of the believer's eternal destruction, or of his forfeited reward. Overthrown Israel is a type of neither, and on neither horn need anyone be impaled. The things that happened to them are types of the profession of Christianity, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Jude speaks of certain ungodly men who had crept into the profession, who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, and says, I will therefore put you in remembrance. Though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. The things that happened to them are not types of true believers. But of those who profess faith in Christ, the great majority of whom in the present day are without faith in his sacred word. And it is in this sense that we have the warnings of Scripture, afterward destroyed them that believed not, they could not enter in because of unbelief, Hebrews chapter 3 verses 18 to 19. The unbelief manifests itself in unholy and unrighteous behavior, and these things have to be taken up, but the root evil is unbelief. The mere profession of faith in Christ saves no one. All the grace that was shown to Israel was powerless to produce in him anything for God. Man must be born of water and of the Spirit, if he is to enter into the kingdom of God. He must be renewed in the whole texture of his moral being. The flesh, which is man's nature as derived from fallen Adam, could not be mended, therefore is it ended judicially in the cross of Christ, our old man has been crucified with him, Romans chapter 6 verse 6, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. The believer, every true believer, whoever he may be, is the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus, and in him is new creation. There the old things have passed away, and all things have become new, and all these new things are of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17-18. There is not an element of the flesh, or of old creation, recognized in our relations with God, nothing of the old order forms part of us viewed as in Christ. In the work that has been done for us, and in the work that has been done in us, is salvation and eternal life, and these blessings we have in him. By the way in which he has intervened for us when we were utterly lost, and we possess them by the power of the Spirit in the knowledge of the Father and of Jesus Christ his sent one. Though in their fullness both are future, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. God gives us, we are told, not only facts backward to believe, but facts forward, never to believe the facts backward is to be lost. Not to believe the facts forward is for a child of God to drift into sin at once. And to incur the peril of the oath of exclusion. 
that there are facts brought before the hearer by the preaching of the gospel no believer will be disposed to question. But these facts are concerning the work of God on our behalf, facts which set him before us in his true character, in grace and love, so that the faith of our souls centers on himself. He becomes the object of our faith. Abraham believed God. The facts are believed because we have faith in the person who speaks them, and yet this faith is begotten in our hearts by the very word that is addressed to us in the gospel. Still it is God that is believed, and not merely facts. In the book that lies before me I cannot say that I find God brought before us as the object of faith. He has revealed himself in the Son of his love, and in Christ have we got to know him. We know him, as I have said, by what he has done, but it is himself we know and trust, I do not find anything of this in the book I have in review. It is all the kingdom, and our efforts to get a good position in it, and that, not for the love of Christ, nor to be near him in the day of his glory, but only for our own advantage. It is something akin to the desire of the wife of Zebedee for her two sons. She wanted them to have the best and most honorable place in the kingdom, Matthew chapter 20 verse 21, or like Peter, behold, we have forsaken all, and followed thee, what shall we have therefore? Matthew chapter 19 verse 27. But what is it that gives true energy and direction to the Christian life? The love of Christ constrains us, and to be with him, to be like him, to be his companions, and to be forever to the satisfaction of his heart. This is better than any glory that could be given to us. If it were possible to miss reigning with him, it would be the consequence of putting into practice the teachings of this book. It is self that is placed before the soul and not Christ. No one will question that a reward given by his pierced hand, as a mark of his approval of the little service we may by his grace be able to render to him will be exceedingly precious to his own. But this does not come much into evidence in this book. Rewards are set before us to encourage us in our tribulation through this evil world, and the warnings that are given are to keep us from forgetting that if God is our Father, our Father is also God. We must remember that the one whom we invoke as Father is the one who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. And the judgments that he exercises in his family are sometimes made to fail with heavy hand. But they will deprive no true believer of a share in the reign of his son, for the kingdom is promised to them that love him. Jazz. 2 to 5, and it is our Father's good pleasure to give it to us. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. If a man does not love God, he is not begotten of God, but if he does love God, he is a child of God, and the kingdom is assured to him by the God that cannot lie. I come back to the question of faith. Faith, in every instance, whether in natural or spiritual things, comes by report, and in divine things report is by the word of God, Romans chapter 10 verses 16 to 17. To believe the report with the heart, that is, with a heart interested in it, is to come under the power of it. To believe the word of a man without being able to verify it, is to believe the man, and to believe the gospel of God, which we have no means of verifying. Apart from the inward assurance that it is he who has spoken, is to believe God, not to believe his word is to say he is not worthy to be trusted. Abraham came under the power of the word addressed to him by God, though he well knew that, as far as nature was concerned, the promise God made to him could never be fulfilled. But he knew that what he had promised he was able also to bring to pass Romans chapter 4 verse 21. A large number of the children of Israel had no faith in God. They are spoken of as children in whom is no faith, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 20, and they could not enter into the purpose of God because of this. Scripture reveals no way into the eternal enjoyment of the favor of God in the new heaven and the new earth except through the kingdom. It is to the kingdom we are called by the gospel, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12, and it is the first thing placed before the believer. 
It is promised to them that love God, and a man who does not love him has not passed out of death into life, James chapter 2 verse 5, 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 8, he is in no vital relationship with God. If it were possible that a soul that loved God would be rejected from the kingdom, it would prove a breach of promise on the part of God, but his gifts and calling are without repentance, Romans chapter 11 verse 29. To those rejected from the kingdom he says, I never knew you, and such a cast into outer darkness, among hypocrites, and into the fire of Gehenna, the second death, Matthew chapter 25 verses 39, 41, 24, 51, and many other texts. If a man is prepared to argue that such a punishment may be meted out to children of God, it would be very unwise to waste precious time in any discussion with him. But the coming kingdom has a heavenly side to it as well as an earthly. It is more a sphere than a plane. When the Son of Man shall have sent forth his angels and gathered out of his kingdom every evil thing that it has accumulated in its present aspect, and shall have cast them that do iniquity into a furnace of fire, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. This I do not doubt is the heavenly side of the kingdom, which, in its administrative character, is set before us in the holy city, Revelation chapter 21, 22. In this city are the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in it the saints of this dispensation shall reign with Christ over the kingdom under the whole heaven, Daniel 7:27. All on the heavenly side are in their ultimate and glorified condition. The city is the whole assembly of the glorified saints of this dispensation. Taking the tabernacle in the wilderness as typical of the order of the world to come, the heavenly city is the holiest, the earthly Jerusalem, the holy place, and the court, the court of the Gentiles. The heavenly city has the Shekinah, the glory of God, and the sphere where his face is seen, Revelation chapter 21 verse 11, 22-4, and in the light of this the nations walk. The glory of the earthly Jerusalem owes its brightness and wealth of blessing to the heavenly. It will minister both light and nourishment to the nation. When we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air our state and condition are changeless, so, thus, shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17. And John tells us, we shall see him as he is, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. This is a way in which the world shall never see him. The world shall see him in his judicial character only, but we shall see him in his and our Father's house, in that place he has prepared for us, John chapter 14. And we shall all be caught up, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Let us give heed to the injunction, then, to comfort one another with these words. Yet after such plain and encouraging words, we are asked in this pamphlet to believe that many of those who have been caught up to be forever with the Lord, and whose bodies of humiliation have been fashioned like unto the Lord's own glorious body, will be excluded from his kingdom and, one, some, perhaps, may behold without entering, two, some return temporarily to corruption, until Hades, together with death, are emptied at the final judgment, three, some are in the mysterious region known as, outer darkness, four, some, guilty of the very gravest offences, are temporarily in Gehenna. To suppose that a man who is fit to be the companion of Christ throughout the eternal ages is not fit to reign with Christ over a rebellious world, is not only contrary to scripture, but obnoxious to every spiritual mind. What could be more unworthy of all that we have learned of God, than to speak of him as returning some to corruption who had been glorified, and in the likeness of Christ, and in spiritual bodies? However unspeakable the joy of having to do with a God of all grace and love, there is a solemnity connected with it that shuts out completely all levity of the flesh. But it is another thing when one is told of the awful vision of the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment that has not the slightest terror for the believer. A saint and servant of God, seeing the effect of that judgment upon himself, may well be aroused to increased earnestness for the Christless soul who may have to stand before it. 
but for himself it has no terrors. We have boldness in that day. But in connection with this subject I read in the pamphlet that I have before me, if on the ground of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4, it should be said that the parousia cannot overtake a believer as a thief. This word of our Lord at once negatives the inference, for the threat of a thief-like descent, accompanied with total ignorance of the arrival, is addressed to a Christian pastor, Revelation chapter 3 verse 3. But the Lord is here speaking of the times and seasons, which refer to his restoring again the kingdom unto Israel, Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 7, and that will be at his appearing to the world. And Israel cannot be taken up for blessing until the church has gone from this scene. The rapture of the church will make way for Israel to come in. The Gentile branches must be broken off out of the olive tree, before the natural branches can be grafted in again, Romans chapter 11 verses 16 to 25. No true believer is in darkness, for he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Delivered us from the power of darkness, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. Indeed believers are themselves light, though they were once darkness, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8. He that hates his brother is in darkness, 1 John chapter 2 verse 22, and to such, is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, Jude chapter 13. Therefore, if the day of which the Lord speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 overtakes anyone it must be as a thief, for all in darkness are without the knowledge of God and utterly unprepared for that day. This is what light is, the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 to 6. We are told that the threat that is addressed to a Christian pastor, the angel of the church in Sardis, decisively proves that Thessalonian disciples, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 15, stand, not for the whole church, but for the watchful only. Even as the promise of escape is addressed to the Philadelphian angel, and only indirectly to all in Philadelphia who also had kept the word of my patience. To Thessalonian disciples there will be no thief-like suddenness. Therefore the Thessalonians stand for souls never surprised, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4, because never unready. It is nice to have things proven, decisively, and surely it would be a pity to have things that have been decisively proven disturbed. Still, one may ask a question, and turn to scripture for a decisive answer. Why was it that that day would not overtake the Thessalonians as a thief? Does not the very scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 4, quoted give the reason? The reason was because they were not in darkness. I have spoken of this, and shown from the word that all believers are in the light, and a light in the Lord. This was not at all peculiar to the Thessalonians, indeed, many believers were a great deal more in the light than they, for they had been converted only a few weeks and had no time to learn anything but the simplest elements of the gospel, nor does the apostle put forth anything advanced in either of his two epistles which are written to them. In verse 5 the apostle says directly to the Thessalonians, ye are the children of light, and the children of the day, and then, as if to show that this was true of all believers, he says, we are not of the night, nor of the darkness. And again, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, verses 9 and 10. And whether we fall asleep, or whether we wait here until he come, when he comes and establishes his kingdom, we shall live together with him. The Lord shall make no mistake in his dealings with either his saints or with the world. He knows them that are his, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, and they know him, John chapter 10 verse 14, and they are beloved of God, for they love Jesus, John chapter 16 verse 27, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. And for them God has the kingdom in view, James chapter 2 verse 5. And speaking of such as should believe through the word of the apostles, he says, The glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them. 
and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them. As thou hast loved me. The world to which we have manifested little of the unity of life and nature, and for that reason goes on in its blind unbelief, shall yet see us in the same glory as Christ. And then it shall, not believe, but know, that the Father sent the Son, and also that he has loved us as he has loved him. John chapter 17 verses 22 to 23. Conclusion. I must bring this paper to an end. I have said that the immediate prospect placed before us in Scripture is the kingdom. To this we are called by the Gospel, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 to 14, and we have the assurance given to us by the God who cannot lie that we shall be confirmed unto the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. But from the beginning good and bad have been found together in the profession of Christianity. The enemy sowed tares among the wheat, and the net gathered both good and bad fish, Matthew chapter 13 verses 25, 47. Therefore we require to be attentive to the scriptures, in order that we may have light for our path through this confusion. In Matthew 5-7 we have the characteristics of those who have title to enter the kingdom and to reign with Christ. How they come to be able to exhibit those beautiful moral features of the king comes not to light in this discourse. This is to be learned from other parts of the word of God. Those who exhibit the qualities necessary for entrance into the kingdom are those who share in the life of the risen and glorified Saviour, and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. They are the qualities of the only life in which we live in our relationship with the Father and the Son, 1 John. Being alive in that life we are able to walk worthy of God, who has called us unto his kingdom and glory, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12. We are called to glory, but there is a way there, and to that way the Holy Spirit by means of the word directs our attention. Should we see others who bear the name of Christ, and who may seem to occupy a high position in the house of God, acting in a way contrary to the divine will? We are warned against going with them or imitating, and their eternal condemnation is plainly declared. To all these warnings we are exhorted to take heed. On God's side we are kept by his almighty power, but on our side it is. By the word of thy lips have I kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Our God has no intention of allowing us to slide away from himself, and therefore are all his wholesome, solemn, and gracious warning. If there is one saint who is more devoted to the interests of Christ than another, he can only say, by the grace of God I am what I am. If what these men, who misread the word of God and fill unestablished souls with dismay, affirm were true, is there a single believer upon earth who would have a place in the coming kingdom of Christ and of God? Certainly if what they teach were true, no one could know whether or not the fires of Gehenna would not be his millennial portion, for they tell us the escape is no privilege attached to faith, but a reward attached to a standard of holiness known only to God. I see around me a great baptized Christian profession, because they have no heart for Christ, turning to fables, modernism, spiritism, Russellism, Christadelphianism, evolution, and every other soul-destroying error invented by the human mind broken loose from God, and under the domination of the devil. And I see sects and parties with the priestly hierarchy and lay hearers part of them treading the highway to Rome and part to rank infidelity. Religious pride, politics, covetousness, pleasure-loving Christlessness, God-forgetfulness, and apostasy, characterizing the whole restless, seething, corrupt mass, out of which the Lord who knows them that are his will shortly call away his own to himself, and spew the nauseous dregs out of his mouth. Then Rome with her illicit traffic with this evil world shall carry on her hellish plotting and scheming unrestrained, while Protestantism, without even its name to live, and Laodicea with her proud boasting louder than ever shall go on in their fancied security, until he shall come upon all as a thief in the night, and bring their sinful career on earth to an end in unsparing judgment.
but not one soul who has been begotten of God shall be denied entrance into the kingdom over which Christ shall reign. End of the reading of the heavenly calling.